Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Right now, we're in our Advent series, where we look at how Jesus is our hope, peace, joy, and love. Good morning, church family. It is great to be with you on a very rainy Sunday morning. You know, I was, got, got up this morning really early. I drove over here and I was like, Lord, can it just rain like this tomorrow? You know, I know it's hard for people to want to get up and come to church on a Sunday when it's like this outside, but listen, I am so glad to see you. And I am so thankful for the ways that God is at work in our church. You know, we baptized last week three people in our 1030 service. This morning, we baptized four. I believe next Sunday morning, we're gonna baptize five people uh, at our 1030 service. Can I tell you, we've baptized more people this year than we did the last two years combined. Can we thank God for that, for how he is working? You know, there are so many other ways that I'm thankful for what God is doing here. Matt Willis, who serves as our missions pastor, shared with me about a dinner that several of our members, along with our missions committee and some of our missionaries and sent ones, hosted last weekend for unreached people groups that are living here in our community. And I want you just to listen to this. Over 180 people attended, representing 20 different countries some of which are the most difficult countries to get into. Places like Afghanistan and Iran, China and India and Nepal and Sri Lanka, Ukraine, Syria, Turkey, Jordan, and Egypt. And over the course of that night, meal was shared together, relationships were built and the gospel is being shared. You know, we're praying as a part of our vision that God would raise up missionaries from our congregation to go to the nations. But church family, let me tell you, the nations are also coming right here. And we have a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel with them. So I'm so thankful for the work that is being done. Can we thank God for that as well this morning? And listen, don't lose sight of this. Through the month of December, we collect our global missions offering. Our goal this year is a million dollars, all of which goes directly out to our primary partners um, in the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board, as well as strategic partnerships that we have through our state convention. Our goal is a million. We're almost at $250,000 as of this morning, which is to be celebrated and commended. But I also want to encourage you, just like Julie and I are doing, uh, just I was challenged years ago to do this, to give our first and our largest gift that we give at Christmas to see the gospel taken to the nations. I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to give so people can go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And lastly, let me say, let me say this. I want you to be really excited about what we're going to do over Christmas Eve as a church family. As we gather across our campuses to lift high the name of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to begin praying now about who you're going to invite to come with you on Christmas Eve to hear the gospel proclaimed as we celebrate the birth of Christ. Our schedule is going to be a little bit different that morning. We're not going to have a 9 a.m. service. We're just going to have a 10.30 a.m. service and a 3 o'clock service here at our Peace Saving campuses. Those services will be identical. We're also offering camp uh, services at three o'clock and five o'clock at our West Campus. 10.30 and three here, three and five at our West Campus. 
Go to whichever one best fits your schedule and best allows you to invite somebody to come with you. So make sure you have that on your radar and we'll be praying for God to do a great work as we boldly share the gospel that morning. Well, listen, if you have your Bibles, I wanna invite you to turn with me today to Matthew chapter two as we continue in our Advent series. We shared with you over the last few weeks that during Advent, we know that Christians all over the world will reflect upon the unexpected nature of Jesus's humble birth there in Bethlehem. And as they reflect back, we also look forward with great anticipation to when he victoriously comes again. And so for Calvary, more specifically, as we look at what the Bible teaches on the birth of Christ, we're reflecting on the more traditional Advent themes of hope and peace and joy and love. As we considered hope, Pastor Josh reminded us that biblical hope is the confident expectation that God will indeed keep his promises. And so as followers of Christ, we have our hearts set on his glorious return. We know that he's coming again to forever establish his eternal reign. But as we await his glorious return, we also set our minds back on what God has done in Christ Jesus, remembering the promises that have already been fulfilled in Christ. And so with our hearts set ahead and our minds remembering what Christ has done, we can now live with hope in the present. Last week, we turned our attention to the shepherds there in the angel on the hillside as they heard the news that Christ had been born. And we talked about what the angel said. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And then the angels, the multitudes would proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That through Christ, we understand that peace that we now need because of the enmity that we have with God can be forever accomplished through the finished work of Christ. He is the one who ends our hostility with God, and he then becomes the very source we need to go and become what Jesus would say are peacemakers. It doesn't mean we know that while we live in the tension between the now and the not yet, between what is and ultimately what is to come, Jesus tells us we will have trouble in this world. But the scripture reminds us that as far as it depends upon us, live at peace with one another. And we can do that when we think deeply about what Christ has accomplished in and through us. Last week, I mentioned to you a little book on conflict that is written by Timothy Lane, a little mini book that will help you if there's a relationship that you have that you're struggling with right now. I meant to bring one up here this morning, but I forgot. I ordered an additional hundred of them because every one of them we gave out last year was gone after the first service. I did not tell the first service I had a hundred more. So those are all for you, okay? But they're out at the next steps area. You can grab one of those and it'll be a great encouragement to you. There's no cost for that. We just want it to be a blessing. Well, this morning we turn our attention to joy. You know, last week when we were talking about the promise of peace that Christ brings, I shared with you that there's not a person in the room who doesn't want that peace. And in a similar way, there's not a person here who doesn't want and long for joy. I read that not not that long ago that the search for joy is the most universal experience for all people throughout all time. I've heard it described as our present cultures, our modern day pursuit of the Holy Grail. But when it comes to joy, things get a little bit tricky. 
And here's what I mean by that. It's tricky because sometimes we try to make and manufacture these artificial distinctions between joy and happiness. And I wanna say to you that I don't think making those distinctions like that is entirely helpful because joy and happiness are often used interchangeably in the scriptures. In fact, it was John Piper who said, if you have nice little categories for joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its use of the language on happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. So I think perhaps What's more helpful is not trying this morning to make a distinction between joy and happiness, but rather a distinction between how does the culture, what's a cultural vision for joy and happiness? And what's a biblical vision for joy and happiness? And where is that found? So if we take those two ideas, let me try to unpack that for you for just a moment. When we talk about a cultural vision for joy and happiness, it's simply this, it's a, it's a thought or a belief that says joy and happiness is gonna be found in the right circumstances. Circumstances that in the moment, I believe are gonna make my life worth living. In other words, joy and happiness is something that happens to us and is entirely based upon external factors, right? Uh, I was talking to my son, Jackson. Many of you know him. He's here this morning and Jackson and Abby came home in an act of kindness to our family to help us decorate the Christmas tree yesterday. And Julian are like, man, I don't know how many more years we're going to get where our adult children come home to help us decorate the tree, but I'm going to take it. You know, earlier this week, many of you know, my son Jackson's a student in NC State and he's studying computer engineering there. And he was telling me, he's been telling me all semester long about his embedded systems. And if you're like me, that just means about absolutely nothing to you. I'm not sure what embedded systems actually means. But as a part of this class, the major work he had to do this semester, the big project was he had to build a remote control car from the ground up. And so he had to put it all together and he had to write the code that would allow the car to perform certain functions. And so throughout the semester, different things had to be checked off. And so the car had to be able to go forward and go backwards. It had to start and it had to stop. It had to go on a triangle. It had to read a line on the ground and make a circle around that. And he's describing all of this to me and everything that goes into it. And my response to him is like, Jackson, that is really neat because I don't know what you're talking about. You know, that's fantastic. And so this week, this week was the big check off. Everything had to be done. Everything had to be complete. And I think it was Tuesday of this week. He said, dad, I've got between four and 10 o'clock where I've got a, all the students in the class have to show up before the professor and the TAs and we have to get our car checked off. It's got to perform all these functions. And he, I called him late in the afternoon. I said, well, how'd it go? He said, well, He said, I got in line to check my car off and I got up towards the front of the line and all of a sudden my car started glitching. And he's like, I I think I can get it to do like so much and get like partial credit, but it's not doing everything it's supposed to do. So I got out of line and I got to end of line and I started trying to figure it out, but I'm not, I'm just not sure it's gonna work. So he calls me a couple of hours later and he's like, dad, it worked. (laughs) 
it worked, all the code, all the function, it happened and I got a hundred on my project. And I was like, dude, that's fantastic. That's joy, right? The circumstance of getting it right and finishing the project, man, it was awesome. And in the moment, it was pure joy and maybe a little bit of relief, right? But listen, the obvious challenge with that is culture's vision of joy is temporary. It lasts for a moment, but soon after we find ourselves searching for joy again. So the moment the car gets checked off, you know what's next? Well, it's the exams that come on Tuesday of this week. So that's short-lived joy. It can only last for a moment. I told you my two kids came home to help us decorate. There was joy in the moment, but guess what? This morning they're going back home and I'll have to start looking all over again. You get the Christmas bonus that pays for the vacation. You go on the vacation and then it's over and it leaves you longing again. So you get it, right? A cultural vision of joy says that it's gonna be found with the right circumstances. The circumstances that in the moment are gonna make life feel worth living. But then there's a biblical definition of joy that's far different. And I wanna give you a definition from Paul David Tripp that's encouraged me and I think it'll be a blessing to you as well. He says this, joy is an inner peace and rest. It's based upon what you know to be true, resulting in a life of thankfulness and expectancy. It's an inner peace and rest based upon what you know to be true that results in a life of thankfulness and expectancy. Note, which transcends your circumstances. You see, joy and happiness are not found in the right circumstances, they're found in the right person. And not just any person, of course, it's found in Christ. And we know this. Many of you know this because you've experienced this deeply. There is a relationship with Jesus that is so deep that when the dark clouds of this life roll in, we can weep and we can grieve. We can beat on his chest with every fiber of our being and we can lament because we know that he understands the brokenness of our lives and our world. And while we simultaneously grieve, we can also rejoice in the one who put on flesh and dwelt among us, the one who has promised to fulfill every last one of his redemptive purposes, which in the end will be for our good and ultimately for his glory. Many of you are familiar with the name Joni Erickson Tata. If you're not, just a brief background. She, I'm not sure exactly how old she is. I'm guessing she's in her 60s now, maybe a little bit older. But when she was a teenager, she had a terrible diving accident and broke her neck diving into a lake. And she was paralyzed from the neck down. So she has no use of her arms and no use of her legs, her lower extremities. And she wrote a book, and in the book she said this. And I want to read this to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but it, it makes the point that I want you to hear. She said this, I sure hope that I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now that grabbed me, right? Now I know that that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful glorified legs, I'll stand next to my savior holding his nail pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said in this world we would have trouble because the thing, that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. 
And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Then, she writes, the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all of earth will join the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus will wipe away our tears. And then she said this, I find it so poignant that finally, at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. You wanna know what joy is? That's joy. That's a biblical vision of joy, an inner peace and rest that's set on the person and work of Christ that produces thanksgiving and it produces expectancy regardless of what comes. And so this morning, what I want us to see is that the problem really isn't that we look for joy because all of us desire it. The real issue is, the challenge for us is where are we looking for it? And so what I wanna do today is I want us to turn to a familiar story with familiar characters who have drastically different responses when confronted with the news that Jesus has been born. So look with me at Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one, and we're gonna read through verse 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who had been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that you would simply speak to us through the power of your spirit. Father, I pray that in each of us right now, as we consider what Matthew so intentionally wrote for us, as we consider a narrative that probably is quite familiar, at least on some level, to most of us. Lord, that we would not come to it flippantly, nor would we come to it with a sense of familiarity or a sense whereby we already know it, but that we would think 
afresh and anew about it. God, we would consider in these moments with complete honesty and transparency, God, to to let us see where it is, God, that we're genuinely looking for joy. And Father, I pray that our responses to that would be appropriate. We would confess that to you, and God, we would look to you again. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my own heart, even as I speak to your people, God, would be pleasing in your sight. And God, I pray for a work in our city, and I pray in our campuses this morning for through Pastor Ryan and Pastor Samuel and our West Hispanic, Pastor Tugay. Lord, I pray that you would work and do a mighty work through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the few minutes that we have this morning, my hope is that we can take a look at a familiar passage of Scripture and actually do a little bit of comparing and contrasting. For us to think deeply about the characters that we see in the story, characters that we're pretty familiar with, and I want us to look at their responses. I want us to look at how they respond to the news of the Christ child, what they do, because it's in what they do, it's in how we respond to Christ that begins to identify for us where we're actually setting our joy, where we're looking for joy, where we're looking and trying to find it. And so as we look, I want us just to kind of take a, not necessarily a verse by verse view of it, but I want us to look at with clarity what their responses are. So as we do that, let me first give a little bit of background. Most of you are familiar with the Magi. You know, sometime after Jesus was born, the Magi traveled to the east and they arrived in, traveling from the east, they arrive in Jerusalem looking for the one who was born king of the Jews, right? We know these wise men would have heard about the Messiah that is to come because of what we know earlier in the Old Testament. We read in places like Daniel, where great men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken into captivity along with the people of Israel. They were taken into captivity as a sign of God's judgment to them for not following the wisdom and the ways of God. And as they're under the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, we would have known that they would have shared about all they knew about God all the ways that God had worked, all the things that God had accomplished. And they would have shared with the wise men of that day, they would have shared the prophecies that had been written about the Messiah who would ultimately come. In fact, you can go back all the way back to Numbers and you can write this verse down, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, where we see a prophecy that is made about a star and a king who would ultimately come. It comes in the context of a story about a man named Balaam who is a magician, in the land who is, has been summoned by King Balak who wants him to come and place a curse on the people of Israel. And so he basically pays Balaam and Balaam comes and he's wanting him to make a curse, but Balaam ultimately won't do it. We see a fantastic story about an angel of the Lord appearing before a donkey and the donkey sees it and then the donkey begins speaking to Balaam. You can read all of this in Numbers 22 through 24. But there at the end of it, as Balaam is speaking, In giving blessing, we read and we hear these words where the scripture says, a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so they come looking for the king who was born, these magi do, and they make their way into the presence of King Herod. 
Now, to know a little bit about King Herod, to know a man who was unbelievably volatile, right? He was a volatile man. He had become king of Judea in the year 40 BC, and he was considered to be king of the Jews. Historians tell us that in his 40 plus year reign, he was brutally wicked, and anyone who threatened his kingdom, anyone who threatened his kingdom, his rule and his reign was dealt with harshly. In fact, we know he murdered his wives and sons at times because he was so panicked. We know that the emperor Augustus said that it would be better to be Herod's sow than to be one of his sons. He was so narcissistic that when he neared his death and he knew that he was dying, he ordered that several well-respected men in the community be put to death. He was so hated that he knew that the nation would not mourn his death, but he wanted to ensure that the nation would go into mourning. And so he ordered their deaths, thankfully, that did not come to pass after he died. So we see these magi coming from the east, and and let me just say here, we don't know how many there were, right? And we know that they didn't show up on the night that Jesus was born, right? We know that because the scripture tells us that they show up to a house. And so all your nativity scenes that have the wise men and the magi there, you just need to go home and blow them up right? No, I'm just kidding. I had a friend of mine who said, man, he took his wise men and he puts them on the other side of the room. You know, it's like, hey, they're going to get there, but just not right now. All right. So the Magi aren't there. They show up at the house and they show up later and then they, or they show up in front of King Herod and we see their responses. So here's what I want to do in the last few minutes. Let's take a moment and look at how each of them respond. With that as our background, how do they respond? Three different groups of people three different responses. The first I want to see is Herod. And his response to the news is what? It's hostility. With a a background of understanding who Herod was, and it's not surprising when we read Matthew's account of how he responds. It says in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Listen, if you're the king and someone walks in and asks you, where is the king? That's going to be a little bit threatening, right? That's going to be a little unsettling. Some of your translations may use the word disturbed or troubled. And I think that actually only begins to scratch the surface of really what's going on within him. You see this inner turmoil. You see that he ultimately is really terrified. He calls the chief priests and he calls the scribes together and he asks them where the Christ was to be born. And they tell him, well, it's in Bethlehem and we'll come to that in just a minute. And now things begin to intensify with him, right? We see that he's not just disturbed. We see that he's not just on edge or in turmoil. We begin to see now he's threatened. And we know the story, so we know how disingenuous he really is when he goes and he speaks to the Magi and he calls them to him and says, listen, go and find them and bring report back to me. We know that when the Magi are warned to go home another way, we see that inner turmoil and that anguish and that threat brewing inside of Herod in such a way that it eventually leaks and leads to a campaign of murder and terror. We read just in a few verses later in Luke or Matthew 2, verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent, listen, and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. I mean, what a horrible, horrible act of genocide, right? 
Well, let me push pause here for just a moment. You know, when we think about Herod and his response to the news that the Messiah, the promised king had been born, I think most of us just kind of have a visceral reaction to his response. It's hard for us to look at this and read this. And it's like, what, what is it that leads a person to do something like this? It's hard for us to imagine that we could do anything like Herod has done. But I think if we stop and if we're real honest with ourselves, I think we're at times far more like Herod than we care to imagine. And here's what I mean by that. I think that there are times in all of our lives when we're confronted with who Jesus is, with what Jesus came to do, and what Jesus demands of our lives, if we're honest, we can see that as a threat to our kingdom too. You know, it was Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, that I mentioned to you last week who said this, in every heart, in every heart then, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by anything that may compromise its omnipotence and sovereignty. Each of us wants to be the captain of our own soul, the master of our own fate. You see, the pattern we see in Herod isn't all that different from what goes on in each of us when our kingdom is threatened. When we begin looking for joy in circumstances that we believe in the moment will make our life worth living, any threat to that elicits within us similar responses, right? It troubles us. We lack peace in the moment. Just like Herod felt threatened, we feel threatened when our kingdom comes under attack. And like Herod, we'll actually do whatever it takes to keep control, including getting rid of the things that we deem a threat to the kingdom that we're trying to build, right? I think about it like when it comes to being in control or having authority or being in power. In our culture, our day and age, when someone is a threat to our authority, when someone is a threat to our control, what do we often see happening in our context and our culture is that people are immediately canceled. Their voices are quieted. We see them as a threat to what we vision as the, as the good life, and so we cancel them. We quiet them. I think about it if we look to a very practical example. I think if we look for joy and seek to find joy in the successes of our children, think about the lengths that you will go to keep your children from ever experiencing pain or discomfort or any sort of disappointment. We've moved beyond helicopter parenting where we're just hovering over our children to now what's called snow plowing parenting where we're trying to push aside anything and everything as parents and grandparents that will be a threat to our children. Cause any sort of pain. Why do we do that? We do that because we in the moment are convinced this is what it's gonna take for my children to be happy and therefore for me to be happy. So what are we doing? We're doing the very same thing. We can do it in our marriages. We can do it in our workplaces. In every, every facet of life, Anything that is a threat to our kingdom produces in us a disturbed heart 
a threatened heart, a suspicious heart, and one that seeks to silence every threat that is a threat to what we value most in life, right? It's hostility, ultimately, towards God. But it's not just the response that we see in Herod that we need to consider. Look at the chief priests and the scribes. We don't spend a lot of time typically talking about it. Herod and the Magi get most of our focus, but I I think it'd be uh, unsensible for us not to at least consider the response of the chief priests and scribes who have a response of indifference. When Herod calls them, he's troubled. All Jerusalem with them is troubled. And then in verse four, we read, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah chapter five, verse two. They were very familiar with it. So they go and they quote it and they say, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And I want you to stop and think about this. These are the religious leaders of the day. They knew the law and the prophets forward and back, right? And yet they do nothing. There's complete indifference. You'd think they'd be like, man, this is incredible. The Magi have come. They've kind of seen what we've seen. We know the law and the prophets. We know what it says in Numbers. We know what it says in Isaiah. We know what it says in Micah. We know that the star would come and that the Messiah was to be born and he was to come from the tribe of Judah. And yet, you'd think they'd be like, come on, let's go with you to find him. But they don't. There's no interest in that at all. And here's what I believe, church family, we can logically deduce, that you can know the word of God, but have never genuinely sought him to the point that you found deep and abiding and lasting joy in him. Let me say it another way. You can know all sorts of things about God and not know him at all. And be entirely indifferent to him. You can know the right things, you can know the right stories, you can go to the right church, you can do all of those things and not really consider him at all to the point that it's brought you deep abiding joy in every circumstance and through the circumstances of life. You know, it's fascinating as I was reading and and studying this week, thinking about the indifference of the scribes and the Pharisees, that one scholar pointed out that often, often, Indifference over time leads to opposition in time. In Matthew's gospel here, we see the name, the king of the Jews attributed to Jesus, right? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The next time you see the name attributed king of the Jews for Jesus, where is it? It's not at his birth, it's where? At his death. It's at his death. And who is standing there demanding that Jesus be put to death? right? It's the religious leaders. It's the scribes. It's the Pharisees. It's the chief priests, right? They're indifferent. And over time, that indifference leads to opposition. So that's Herod, and that's the religious leaders. Now, now compare that to the Magi and look at their response. For their response was not hostility or indifference, It was unadulterated worship. 
The scripture says, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, notice they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him and they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I mean, look at the profound nature of their response. They bow down. They recognize they are in the presence of someone who is greater than them, someone who is superior to them. And they are in essence saying, I am low and you are high. But it's not just that they bow down, right? They worship him. A worship that manifests itself in them giving lavish gifts to him in acknowledgement that he is the king. They worship him. To bow down makes sense. So I want you to, I want you to stop, I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to imagine that you're one of the magi and you come into this room. You come into this house. And when you walk into this house, you find a very poor Mary, a very poor Joseph, and you find a child that they are holding. Now imagine you're there and imagine seeing what the magi see. And in that moment, watching them just bow down and begin to worship him. It was J.C. Ryle commenting on this passage of scripture that talked about just how extraordinary it is, the fact that they worshiped him. Because he would say, they saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no wise words out of his mouth. They saw nothing but a newborn infant on the lap of a poor woman but they worshiped. And he would go on to say, no greater faith than this can be found in the whole volume of the Bible. Scholars note and point out that almost everywhere in the New Testament, anyone who believes in Jesus, anyone who worships Jesus has some sort of encounter with them where they hear him teach, they watch him perform a miracle, or they are the beneficiaries of a miracle themselves. And so it elicits this worship and praise, but that wasn't the case for the Magi. They didn't hear Jesus speak. They didn't watch him perform any miracles. They see him and they acknowledge and they understand through divine revelation that this child is the one that they have been looking for their entire life. Can you imagine the joy that came over them? And so they present him with extraordinary gifts that convey his insurpassable worth, gifts appropriate for a king. They understand that this was not just the king of the Jews, but the one who would rule and reign over all the nations. Several years ago, we gave you a uh, Advent devotional by Tammy Priest who did a wonderful job and in it, she said this, they understood that when Israel's Messiah finally arrived, he would not come for the Jews alone, but for all the nations and all people, including them. They found the one that they were looking for their entire life and it resulted in worship and laying down the most extravagant possessions as a gift and an offering to him. You see the joy, the inner peace and rest that we're looking for in this life, just like the Magi is found in this poor child. This is the one who would go to the cross and die for them. This is the one who would suffer for them. And Jesus went, he went there with joy to the cross and he went there for our joy. You know, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, that we are to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy 
The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of Father. It was for his joy. He went to the cross with joy, knowing what it would produce. And what it would produce is joy in us as we abide in him. You know, in John chapter 15, right before Jesus' death, Jesus shares a meal with his disciples, and he has a conversation, and John records all of that conversation. And he encourages them. He's saying, listen, I'm going to go away. But when I go away, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he's not going to be just a comfort for you. He's going to be a guide for you. And he encourages them over and over again. He's saying, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. And just as the Father and I are one, we can be one. And he says to them, as one author wrote, Jesus was on his way to the cross. He was preparing to endure unimaginable pain. And at this moment, what was on his mind? What goal prompted his last words to those he loved? He told them in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Listen, Jesus is concerned for us and he wants us to experience the fullness of that joy. And you can experience it when you look to him. And if you'll look to him, you'll find, you'll find that inner peace and rest resulting in a life of thankfulness and expectancy. You'll find the inner peace and rest that's, that allows a woman who's been wheelchair bound to say, it will all have been worth it when I see King Jesus. You'll find an inner peace and rest that will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. And so who do you most, church family, identify with? In an honest assessment of your heart and your life that reveals where you're looking for joy, who do you most identify with? Do you most identify with Herod? Are you hostile toward Christ, seeing him as a threat to what you treasure most? Can you see clearly the way that little Herod in you it's causing anxiousness and turbulence in your heart as you see following Jesus as a threat to what you treasure most in this life. And let me be honest. Let me just, I'm, not, I'm always honest with you. Most of the time, the threats to us that we think are gonna make life worth living aren't the illicit things. They're the good things that we make into ultimate things. It's good things like a marriage. It's good things like our children. It's good things like our work and our careers. It's good things like wonderful experiences that we have and the joy that we have in them. It's often the good things, but those good things keep us from the ultimate thing and they're always intended to point us back to the giver of the gift. But when we make them ultimate, Jesus will become a threat to us. And in the end, we'll be hostile to him. Is that you? If you're really honest, do you see denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him as a threat to what you treasure most in this life? Or are you indifferent towards him? Are you just indifferent to the ways of God? You know all sorts of things about him, but it just hasn't moved the needle in your heart at all. Hasn't moved the needle to the place where you're ready to leave it like the, scribe, like the Magi and go find them. You're just kind of content with the Pharisees and the religious leaders saying, yeah, I know it, but it doesn't really change me. You say, well, I don't, how do I know that? Well, can I ask some convicting questions? What does your time in the word look like? 
What does your time in prayer look like? How are you viewing your relationship with the people of God? How do you think about generosity? You know, if there's no movement in those areas of our lives, those can be like, those don't change our position before the Lord because we're, we're fully um, justified in the finished work of Christ and Christ alone, but those ought to be the fruits of a life that is pursuing him. And if those things aren't there, and maybe I just need to ask the question, well, Lord, am I just kind of indifferent towards you? Is there an indifference in my heart that's just kind of just cruising through life? Or are you worshiping him? just willing to sacrifice everything. The scripture says, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is the fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures evermore. Who are you most like? Where are you looking for joy? May it be that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who promises to give us himself the true source of lasting joy. Amen. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.